We turn to the gospel as it is recorded by Luke, Luke chapter 15. Our text begins at verse 11, but let's read the first couple of verses of the chapter. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, A certain man had two sons. Verse 12, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with a husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. When he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And his son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and Kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he, answered, he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Thus far, the reading of the gospel record, our text consists of verses 11 through 24, having to do with the prodigal and the father's reception of the prodigal, though especially with focus on the prodigal himself and his return. A most beloved parable. Why is that? Well, 
has a lot to do with sin, the power of sin, the deception of sin, the promises of sin that it, in the end, cannot deliver, the foolishness of one son who goes his willful wandering way and wastes everything he has, and then an elder brother who is filled with self-righteousness, devoid of love, this thy son, not this my brother, no, this thy son hath returned unto thee and judgmental to the extreme. And yet a beloved psalm, a beloved parable, why? Because we realize that the heart of this, in the this parable, the heart of which Christ is saying, it's not sin in the end that has the final word. What has the final word in this parable, especially the section that we consider, is the mercy of this father as he receives his son again and holds them in his embrace and freely forgives it all. Sin for the child of God not having the final word. That's heartening. But notice, beloved, it's a mercy experienced in the way of repentance, in the way of a returning. Not apart from repentance. In the way of repentance. No, not because of repentance, but still in the way of repentance. And as that repentant prodigal comes home, he is embraced by his father. And of course, that's the burden in the end of the parable. That in the mercy of God, there is hope. And due to the mercy of God, sinners such as we all are, have hope and need not despair because as we read in the parable you have that father who receives his son again and what we have here beloved is a revelation of the character of God before whom we all stand in whose hands we exist and can do with us as he so pleases and if it is his will to destroy us, he not only can, but we have given him every right to destroy and disinherit us. Why not? Because of the one who speaks the words of this parable, who is none other than the very one whom the true father sent into the world to bring us these words and to himself then by word and by his deed to reflect and display what is in the heart of our heavenly father. And because we may know who God is as our father through this parable teller, Christ Jesus, we have hope, don't we? And reason in the end to make merry, to celebrate, 
and to give thanks and not despair. And so with that in mind, I turn to this parable simply under the theme, the prodigal son, because we're dealing with the first part of the parable. Guilty of grievous sin, deceived by sin, and turning at last to be received. I suppose we could say turned at last to be received. Nonetheless, he also turns. This is his will, the prodigal's will. This is his choice by the power of grace that enables it and us so to be. A certain man had two sons. And that brings us to the occasion for the parable. As we read, then drew near to him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribe murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. He speaks these words in the ears of two groups of people, publicans and sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes. Publicans and sinners, of course, represented by the younger brother and the Pharisees and the scribes represented by the elder brother. And really, this parable is meant for the scribes and Pharisees. It's because they are there that he speaks these words. But he speaks them in the hearing of the publicans and sinners, and then for their sakes as well. Two groups of hearers. The one had drawn nigh to this Jesus of Nazareth because they had need of him and his words. They knew themselves to be guilty of sin and their sins weighed down upon them and they wanted to hear good words from this one whom they knew represented Jehovah God as a prophet and even more than a prophet. But there's another group there as well, and they are there, they are those, of course, who had little use for sinners, that, as they, that is, as they judged sin, had no use for sinners, and as far as they were concerned, those who were known for such sins might as well perish. The scribes and the Pharisees are there, and beloved, those publicans and sinners disgusted them. The sins of others, you see, disgusted them. Know anything about that? The sins of others? And don't those sins disgust you? Shall we leave it there? Just with the sins of others? That disgust us so? That's not the parable, is it? That's contrary to the parable. Christ is indicting these scribes and Pharisees who knew all about the sins of these others that filled them with such disgust. But precious little about their own because they would not have characterized themselves, identified themselves with sinners. They were keepers of the law. But not only was it the sins of the publicans and sinners that filled them with disgust, 
It was this Jesus of Nazareth whom they despised who also filled them with disgust. Because as they said, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. In other words, it's apparent that he must approve of them. Or he would not eat with them, would he? And if he approves of them, how in the world can he possibly be the Christ, the Messiah, and the representative of Jehovah God? Because one thing we know, when we consider the life of the publicans and sinners, those harlots out on the street, Jehovah God cannot possibly approve of their lifestyles, the one having to do with harlotry and the other having to do with money and covetousness and who knows, stealing what rightfully belongs to others. So this Jesus of Nazareth, if he eats and drinks and will associate with publicans and sinners, cannot be the Christ and he cannot certainly be the Son of God. What Christ is underscoring, of course, in this parable is how mistaken they are in their assessment of the character of Jehovah God and how foreign to the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees, or I should say, how foreign to the heart of God, Jehovah God, is, are the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees because what is true of the heart of Jehovah God, beloved, concerning his own children is compassion. He is the Lord of compassion towards his own who are sinners, be they believer or at the time unbelievers. One may be an unbeliever, but if he is an elect child of God, he is still the object of compassion. I did not say approval. They're not the object of approval, but they are the object of compassion because to such he will send the gospel, and not only the gospel, he will come as the Holy Spirit, and he will work in their hearts, and concerning them also it will be said, this my son was dead and now he's alive, and he was lost, and now he's found. And so Christ underscores here the, the depth of the sin of the scribes and Pharisees in their harsh judgmental spirits. And he makes plain that he and his compassion as he will associate with these publicans and sinners is indeed yet a representative and reflection of Jehovah God. As we have said, Christ speaks here of two sons. Speaks of the younger brother, who of course represents the publicans and sinners. He speaks of an elder brother who represents the scribes and the Pharisees. And though we speak of them as two groups, Yet, from a certain point of view, you know, we must, we must categorize them together. They belong in the same category in a certain sense. They are both members, you know, of the same congregation, of the same denomination. They're Jews, every last one of them, and the males were all circumcised and so had submitted to a sacrament as well, and we were in what we call the sphere of the covenant. They all had Abraham as their father, and when they went to church, they all went to the same temple to make petitions and to bring sacrifices and all the rest. They were, from a certain point of view, all cut out of the same cloth. Circumcised Jews, or if women having been married to one who was circumcised. And yet, for all of their similarity, the love they are to be distinguished. 
and they are fundamentally different because the one group lacked a fundamental truth and reality. The one group beloved lacked grace and the power of grace and the difference that grace makes in a person's life. And how does that difference show itself, do you suppose? You say with a confession of faith. No, not simply with a confession of faith. You know how many in the church have made confession of faith and then gone their willful way and perished? For all their confession of faith? The fundamental evidence of grace as it has worked, beloved, is love. The greatest of these is love. Charity. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You may have faith to move mountains, but if thou lackest charity, you are as a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. You make a lot of noise, but it's not music to the Lord's ear, I'll tell you that. Love. The scribes and Pharisees, beloved, were devoid of that grace, that evidence of the transforming power of the Spirit. Love. Self-denying, love concerning self, and self-giving, love towards others. Isn't that the heart of Christ? Christ is love. For our sakes he denied himself. For our sakes he gave himself for us. But he doesn't just stop there for us. He also gives himself to us so that we may be transformed. These scribes and Pharisees, beloved, though in the sphere of the covenant as sons of Abraham, lack that fundamental reality and work of God that we label as grace, which has, of course, to do with the operations of the Holy Spirit, contrary to any man's deserving. However, that said, whatever it is that Christ Jesus in this parable says concerning the scribes and Pharisees, as he identifies them with that elder brother, let us not think that he has nothing to say about the sins of the younger brother that we know as the prodigal. As somehow Christ Jesus minimizes the sin of the prodigal. He magnifies the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees and of the elder brother. But he minimizes and all but overlooks the sin of the younger brother and the prodigal son. There is no minimizing here of the sin of the prodigal son. Beloved, let's understand that the only sin of which a man is guilty is not this, that he happens to be self-righteous or he happens to be proud and he happens to be judgmental of others. And as long as you are not proud and judgmental of others, then you may live as you please then you may follow any lifestyle you want to live, because I'm not judgmental, you see, and I tolerate and love you all. That's pretty much, you know, apostate Christianity of the 21st century. That's what it has become. As long as you don't judge others, and as long as you never rebuke others for sin, and as long as you don't think too highly of yourself, because you know we're all sinners, then you may pretty much live as you please. You may follow the trail of the prodigal, and the word of God from this pulpit, they say, will not rebuke you, reprove you, 
or speak of any coming condemnation unless you repent. That's not Christ Jesus allowed. It's true, he associated with the publicans and the sinners. But that's a far cry from saying, and he was approving of their lives as they lived as publicans and sinners. He did not approve of their lives, and that's very plain from the parable, as we're going to see, as he describes what happened to the prodigal when he associated with the publicans and sinners for who came to hear him, he didn't come simply to justify them. He came to reprove them, to rebuke them, to call them to repentance, and to confront them with the mercy of Jehovah God, of whom he was the representative, that there is forgiveness even for the likes of you, hear my words and repent. Let me just say something briefly about those harlots, because you may wonder how in the world could Jesus be hanging around with prostitutes. You understand in that day and age that these harlots were those, almost all of them, who had been divorced, who had been once married, and their husbands had decided at some point they weren't happy, satisfied with their wife. Maybe she was growing older. They weren't. She was growing older. They wanted someone younger. Set her aside. Put her out of the house. Why do you think Christ speaks so vehemently and angrily about divorce and remarriage in the Gospels? Especially against the scribes and Pharisees, because woman after woman was shunted out of the house to try to make her own living. How would she make her own living in that day and age? Then he didn't have a family to return to. And they plied, finally, their craft upon the streets. Christ did not approve of that. You know the gospel, do you not, of the woman taken in adultery? And he says, neither do I condemn thee in the wells, and to go thy way and sin no more, do not live in that way. Christ does not approve of them. That's different than saying he did not love them and was not filled with compassion towards them and he would call them out of the sins unto godliness once again. But so it is, you understand, with this parable. He is in no way minimizing the sin of the prodigal, because in the course of the parable, of course, the prodigal says that he is going back to his father with these words when he came to himself, I will go to my father and say, I am no more, no more worthy to be called thy son, and he's speaking the absolute truth. He is no more worthy to be called this father's son. He has transgressed against this Father. This is a man who has a father who is above reproach. He is a father who has treated his household with a certain generosity and a benevolence so that you, you read that he even treats his servants in a very generous and benevolent way because when he comes to himself, he says, how many hired servants of my father's house have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. In other words, this man gave to his servants not only enough to exist and a subsistence living, he gave them even more so that they had something also to spare. He was a very generous, benevolent man. And if that's true, beloved, concerning this man's servants, how in the world do you think he treated his sons, but with a certain kind of generosity and with a, a love. This is a, a man who is to be considered to be God-fearing and, and wise-hearted, and he deals not only with his servants in this way, but certainly with his sons as well, so that this son has known nothing but goodness in the house of this father. 
This father may not represent the father of every home. Maybe that there are other homes, you know, sons who have fathers who are harsh and severe and can treat one in such a way that one is provoked, as you, if you will, unto sin. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Living with fathers who are sinners and do not treat their children with, with wisdom. But that's not true of this father. He is a father to be emulated, if you will, and he is a father in the end, of course, who represents Jehovah God himself from a certain point of view, what you find in Psalm 103, which we will, will sing at the conclusion of the service, that is encapsulated by the phrase, the tender love a father has for all his children dear. And this was a father who had this love for his sons, for his children dear, and so when this son sins, he sins, of course, against one who has dealt with him in nothing but, but goodness. And it's against this father of goodness that he shows a base ingratitude and, and rebels and even takes the possessions of this father and he will use the possessions of this father in the service of sin and wastes the goods of this father who hath given him of his inheritance. And so we are brought, of course, to what the essence of sin is. This, this son, interestingly enough, wants to leave his father's home with his goods. Why leave his father's home with his goods? Because, of course, he knows that if he's going to live his life in sin, it's not going to be allowed in this father's house. If he tried to live in sin and willful waywardness in his father's house, he would have been reproved and rebuked and disciplined. But he doesn't want to listen to this, this father and be disciplined by his father by living in sin. Give me my living so I may go out and live as, my pl as I please because I don't want your authority. In fact, why haven't you died as yet? You should be dead by now. But you keep living, and I can't wait any longer for your death, so just give me my living. That's the attitude, you see, of this prodigal son. It's not to be minimized. It's not to be dismissed. Sin, beloved, is sin. All sin. And the prodigal sin is of a serious nature as well. And he turns his back on father's house. He does not want the restrictions, you see, of that house. He doesn't mind living in a house where he could have a lot of things and a lot of goods and, and live in abundance and with luxuries. But he is not interested in living in a house that has rules and regulations and restrictions and that would stifle him with the appetites he wanted to feed. That's true, you know, of human nature, our human nature as well. But it is also the reason why many are willing to be members of a certain kind of church and Christianity. They don't mind having church membership because, you know, when you die, you have to kind of, I'm going to put it this way, hedge your bets just in case there's a heaven and a hell. And you don't want to end up in hell. So be a member of a church. And when you die, have a clergy there who can say some good words over you. And perhaps you'll find yourself in heaven after all. But don't give me a church, a Christianity that puts restriction on my life. <laughs> don't give me a church that reads the law. Sunday morning by Sunday morning and says, thou shalt not, and thou shalt not, and thou shalt not. I'm not interested in thou shalt nots. Away with the thou shalt nots. I want to live in a certain way, and I want you not to reprove and rebuke, but to tolerate that and tell me 
in spite of all that, deep down, I'm really still a pretty good individual, you know. Our own nature, we chafe against the law, the yoke of the law, we would call it our old nature, as it puts restrictions upon our life and means we must deny this appetite and that appetite. Begins in the Lord's day. Let's choose a church, but not one that is strictly bound to the fourth commandment the whole day, if you be pleased. One that allows us to go to church in the morning and maybe only on an irregular basis as long as we bring our collections and, and so on, and the rest of the day we may do as we please. That kind of Christianity I can live with. That is the one I embrace, but not one like this father's house that has rules and regulations and will not tolerate one simply living according to one's appetites and lusts at one's pleasure. And so it is that this younger son turns his back on father's house on Father's love and all the rest, and goes out into the world. Why does he turn his back on Father's house when Father's house really gave him all that he really needed, or if you will, from a certain point, point of view, could want? And it's blessings. Why turn your back on such a house? Because, of course, he wanted to serve self. He wanted to satisfy self. He wanted to live for self. And if you lived in this father's house, you had to think of others. You had to think of the, the rules of the father. And you had to be of use and service to others. And for the sake of others, deny yourself. I'm not interested in living that way. I intend to live for self. Give me my inheritance that I may go and feed my appetites and live for self without thy restrictions and thy rules and thy regulations. I want my freedom. By what she was really saying, of course, I want to live by my own license in a licentious way, and so off he went to this far country. This, of course, is one who has to be brought to repentance lest he perish. And what Christ does in this parable is to underscore the importance of repentance and the calling to repentance by confronting the hearer with the fullness of sin, if you will, and the consequences in a vivid way of sin as this young man goes out into this far country to live as he pleases. He is one who asks for his father's living, and he receives that father's living. And if you read the parable as we have, then you realize, of course, that in the end, he ends up in emptiness and alone and in despair. But that's not how it began. His going into the far country does not begin with emptiness and loneliness and despair. He's on the broad way that leads to destruction. But the broad way, beloved, doesn't begin with emptiness and with despair and being all alone. The broad way is, like you can find in New York City, offers you all that you can possibly want and assures you that this is where pleasure and satisfaction can be found. Here's the fruit Take a bite, 
and let the juice run down your chin. You'll enjoy it and wonder why you put it off so long. The deceitfulness of sin. When you get to the end, of course, you have the prodigal who is in want. But he goes into the far country and we read riotous living. When we think of the word riot, we think of someone throwing bricks through windows, perhaps. It's not the word, that's not the meaning of the word riotous here, but we also use the, riot, the word riot in a certain point of view of seeking one's pleasure. Young people may have gone out with their friends and they come home and they said, well, did you have a good time? Oh, we had a riot. Don't they use that word? We had a riot. Oh, we had so much fun. We did pretty much as we pleased, within, of course, restraints and, and laws, but we expressed ourselves in this way and that way to the, to the fullest. It was a riot. So with this prodigal beloved, he spent his father's living. It's not his. His father's not dead yet. He spends his father, father's living and wasted his substance in this riotous living. Notice the word wasted. That's the meaning of the word prodigal. That's where we get the word prodigal. Prodigal means waster or squanderer and does it in a prodigious way. Takes all that he has and he spins it to his heart's content and this young man did to satisfy every appetite he could imagine to scratch every itch as it were, even, so we speak of harvests. He finds the harvest and he commits fornication as well. Christ is not minimizing the sin of this younger brother, this young man. It is serious, as all sin is, and he indeed is worthy of being disowned and dispossessed. He is, as we have said, a prodigal, and he is living his way sumptuously to his heart content. And he ends up, of course, as the parable makes plain, being in want. Empty, if you will, which is in the end is the end of sin, unconfessed, unturned from, unrepented especially sin, that is, it is a matter of deliberate choice. In the end, of course, it does not satisfy. He ends up spending his, to his heart's content, and he experiences friendships. You have all of those, of course, who are willing to spend his money with him, and he wastes his, his living, and he has these friends, and pretty soon it's all gone. Not how it began. That's how it ends. And now where are those precious friends of him? As long as he could say, the bill is on thee, the bill is on thee, they were right with him. They thought he was a fine fellow. And then his inheritance was gone, and now suddenly those friends have evaporated like alcohol on the top of a table and it's gone and they are gone and now he must find new friends and he can't find any new friends and now he must find a, a living and he can't find any living so he associates himself with one who is the raiser of swine. Remember these are Jews. And if there is any animal with whom you did not want to be associated with was a swine. This young man is so desperate that he is willing to associate himself and be of service to the swine, to the pigs out in the field. And you have, of course, this uh, countryman who hires him on. He is, of course, the antithesis of this young man's father. He gives this young man not really even enough to eat, just barely to survive, so that in the end this young man would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and he 
is all alone, and he ends up at the point of despair. That's where sin ends the love. Now it's true that not every sinner, unrepentant sinner, may end up that way. Many do, those who live by alcohol, drugs, or, or sexual promiscuity, or, or what have you, with what, who knows what kind of diseases, may often end up in despair. But even those who live sumptuously and they die with eyes who still have fatness, in the end, in the what is to follow, beloved, will end up empty and despair. All that they have had in this life will be taken from them. You can't take it with you, you know. You will be dispossessed. And you will enter into the place that is even entitled by the unbelieving wicked Greeks as abandoned hope, all ye that enter here. And so it is with the deceitfulness of sin. This young man ends up being, as I have said, in want, alone. And the hire of the citizen who values his swine more than those who are helping and feeds his swine better than he feeds his help. And no man gave unto him. But we call the love the emptiness of sin in the end when all is said and done. It has proved itself again and again and again. It promises so much. Just like Adam and Eve. Here, take the fruit. It's delicious. You'll like it. You'll be as God. You'll know good and evil. You can make your own choices. Life will be full. And that's how it ended up, huh? That was true. And they ate. And it tasted good. For how long? And their eyes were opened, and they were filled with shame, and they were under the sentence of death, and in themselves all alone. Even the love between them now was estranged, as they were ashamed in their nakedness and unclothed and exposed. Wonderful promises, but it's all deceit. 6,000 years of human history, beloved, and mankind refuses to learn the lesson of it being so and still wants to deceive himself. Oh no, the wages of sin are joy and happiness and pleasure and life. Not the way of self-denial. Not the way of submitting to the word of God and having restrictions placed on one and a path laid before one that's called the straight and the narrow, not that. And they end up beloved in the place even the ungodly understand is a, abandon all hope, ye who enter here in the portal of death. And so beloved for this young publican. And there he came to his senses. As far as he's concerned, beloved, he is forgotten and alone. Almost forgotten and all alone. But there's one who has not forgotten him, isn't there? And that one is this young man's father. His father has not forgotten him. His father still has a love for this son. And the heart of this father still yearns that his son return to him. In reality, of course, it's the love of our father, our heavenly father, that does draw us to himself and brings us to our senses when all is said and done. Now that's not highlighted in this passage because of course you're dealing with the human father and a human father for all his love for his children can't change the hearts of his children and if they go wayward all he and we can do is grieve and pray and pray that the heavenly father 
enters into the picture and takes a hand and changes the heart of those whom we so love. But when it comes to God, his love is never frustrated. Whom he loves, he saves. Whom he loves, he draws. And so it is with God and his own. And in some ways, in some ways, that's even suggested, indicated by the parable, because we read that there was a famine in the land. Who sent the famine? Not the father of the parable, but the one whom this father represents. And the one whom this father represents, of course, is none less than God himself. He sends this mighty, grievous famine so that there is a lack of food in the land, and this young man hits rock bottom and is all but starving to death. And as he starves, almost starves to death, we read, he comes to himself. That's quite a phrase, you know. And he came to himself. Suppose you could say he, he woke up. But the point is that until grace works and God works by his grace, no one really understands himself in his desperate need. Every man will deceive himself that really it's not so bad as I want to think. I still have some hope, 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 when there is no hope apart from God. So grace works, and God works it even in connection with that famine, if you will, so that he knows his emptiness and his want. And he realizes what he has done to himself. I have rebelled. I've shown base ingratitude. I have turned against my father's house and against his love and returned him evil for good. And if I continue waiting here, I die, I perish in despair. What is there left for me to do? I have but one hope, to return to father's house and in some way to be received. There is repentance going on, isn't there? What Christ is speaking of here is repentance. He comes to himself. The work of repentance begins. The activity of repentance begins to stir so that he says, I have sinned. I have done this evil. He doesn't, par he doesn't blame anybody else. He blames himself, beloved. I have sinned. Conviction of sin, his own responsibility. And then he humbles himself and says, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son, indicating what? That he realizes he's going to be received again. It's by sheer grace contrary to all that he deserves. And if the father were simply to dismiss him, it would be more than, no more than he deserves. So there's conviction. I have committed sin against thee, my sin. I have committed this sin. I'm guilty. Humbles himself. I'm no more worthy. And he also resolves to turn from his sin. That too is part of repentance. Not simply saying I'm sorry and then continuing in the way, but having expressed sorrow, leaving the far country. He turns his back on the far country to return to Father's house, certainly, beloved, those three elements have to do with the sincerity of repentance. But that's not all that you find here. Repentance is not simply conviction, humility, and a turning from the sin. It's also a turning to the Father out of a desire for the fellowship with the Father. There are those, who, you know, who leave alcohol listen behind and say, I'm no more going to drink and I'm no more going to smoke and I'm, I'm no more going to do this and I'm no more going to do that, and they don't. But they don't return to God. This is not simply, I want to escape wrath. If I continue in this way, I'll escape wrath. I'll, I'll experience wrath. I don't want wrath. So rather than have wrath, I'll leave this sin and maybe end up in heaven when all is said and done. That's not this repentance. This young man desires, desires his fellowship with his father again. He desires to know the love of his father again. That's repentance, beloved. Conviction, the humility, the turning from, and a turning towards the one whom we know in the end is more than life to me. 
that I may know thy approval, Lord, and thy love once again. And so this young man in repentance turns towards home. And beloved, what's interesting is that before the son ever confesses his sin and unworthiness, he is embraced. He arose and came to his father. When he was yet a great way off, his father saw and had compassion and read and fell on his neck and kissed him. And then you read the son said, the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven in thy sight. So, Repentance doesn't come before forgiveness. Is that what we are to conclude? You don't have to repent to be forgiven. Nonsense, beloved. Stuff and nonsense. We sang Psalm number 89, 83. Did you notice the phrase? When I confess transgressions, then thou forgavest me. Repentance and then forgiveness. The knowledge of forgiveness. You see, in this parable, Christ is not laying down the exact relationship between repentance and forgiveness. You want to know about that? You, we have another parable. The publican who goes on his knees and says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And he went home justified, having confessed be merciful to me, the sinner. He goes home justified. What Christ Jesus is doing here is underscoring the permanence of God's love. And this is what we must hear, that God loves his own even when we are in the ways of sin. And sinners, beloved, must hear that some who may be despairing of for being forgiven. I have sinned so greatly like Simon Peter, who denied his Lord with cursing and swearing, the likes of me certainly cannot be saved. How could God love one like me? Hear the parable. The father was at the gate, looking down the road. That was still his son. And he loved that son, even in the way of his foolishness. He's not approved. He disapproved, and the son knew that. That's why he left father's house. But father still loved that son. And as I said, in the end, it's the love of the true father that draws his sons back home again. And he knows, he knows, beloved, his sons are returning home again who have turned their backs on the far country. So there is here a repentance of which the true father knows, our father knows, that we are coming in repentance with our backs turned upon the far country to seek forgiveness, to make confession. And we go into his presence and he hears the word and he reinstates us into the inheritance. And we are known and he knows and we know that we are his. It's in the way of repentance, beloved, that you experience the mercies of God. But the mercies of God towards his own, are always there. And the call of the gospel is come. Come in the way of repentance and faith and know and experience that mercy. And your Father will embrace you. And the angels in heaven will rejoice. And the church beloved will make merry, that is, celebrate his worth and our own salvation. Amen. Father, who art in heaven, we stand amazed at thy grace that has saved wretches like us. We once were lost and now we're found. We're blind, but now we see the truth concerning self, not only but the truth concerning thee and thy love as revealed to us by the words and person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the teller of parables, but also the Lord of a word.
that takes hold of us and makes known to us, we are thine and thou art our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.